Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today, we are doing something a little bit different. I've been saying that a lot lately, haven't I? Well, today we are doing something a little bit different. What we're going to be doing is looking back over the last 12 months at all of our different language episodes, and we've selected some of the best clips and and segments and pieces from these episodes. And I'm going to mash them all together in one super cut, amazing, fantastic, wonderful episode. And I'm really excited about it. So before we get into this super amazing, fantastic, wonderful episode, I want to mention a couple of things to you. First of all, I hope you guys had an amazing Christmas and a fantastic New Year's. We certainly had a lot going on here in Panama. We did a Christmas party with close to 50 people that flew in from all over the world. We did a silent auction for 1018 and through the silent auction and other donations we got over eight and a half thousand dollars donated oh my god my community is so amazing i love you guys eight and a half thousand dollars which is more than going to be enough to fund our literacy program so if you guys didn't see what we're doing what happened is we decided to do a literacy program where we're going to take 60 illiterate girls, teen mothers from the slums of Uganda and take them fully through a program in 2022 and teach them how to read, write, and do arithmetic. From there, we're going to be doing a computer lab program and it's kind of literacy 2.0 to get them literate on computers because obviously everything is done through technology these days. Even applying for a job or your national ID in Uganda is all have to be done through the computer. And we are even going to be doing a business literacy program. So that's kind of literacy 1.5 or 2.5. I'm not sure exactly, but those will be going in. So the eight and a half thousand dollars that fully funded our literacy program for reading and writing and arithmetic, and it has partially funded some of our other programs. If you guys want to find out more about 1018 and the work that I do there for the nonprofit, you guys can go to expatmoneyshow.com 
forward slash 1018-1018, all numbers. It's an amazing charity and I'm really excited about it. Okay, so that is number one. Number two, if you guys have not joined our private Facebook community, then I highly encourage you do so now. It is at expatmoneyforum.com. It's going to redirect you to the group. We have so much conversation going on in there, so much discussion, so many different funny things and friendships being made and sometimes some pretty heated arguments, but it's all in good spirit. But it is a safe place where people can discuss about going offshore, about moving their finances, their businesses, about different countries, about immigration and tax issues, and find other people who are going through the same thing. So I really hope that you guys go to Expat Money Forum and check that out. And last, before we jump into this interview, we have school semester starting soon for Expat School, Expat International School. If you guys have kids ages 8 to 19 years old and you want to learn more about it, all you need to do is go to expatschool.io. The website there will explain everything. We have a junior program, which goes a novice program that goes from 8 to 11-year-old, a middle school that goes from 11-year-old to 14 years old, and a high school that goes from 14 years old to 19 years old. I hope all of those ages matched up. But it is a very good program. We have over 100 kids enrolled right now between the domestic and the international school. We're really excited about it. We're helping a lot of families with this. There's lots of content on there so you guys can find out more about what we do. We've been doing webinars and podcasts and all of that. So yeah, check it out. We're really passionate about it. We're helping a lot of families. I hope you guys get involved. If you teach subjects, if you want to be a mentor, if you want to be a tutor, if you want to donate to the school, if you want to participate in any shape or form, or if you have kids or grandkids or nephews or nieces or neighbor kids in the neighborhood who you think this might help and be a good fit for, then send it on to them. We are happy for referrals. Absolutely. So, Today, what are we going to be talking about? What are we going to discuss? What is this interview? We're going to be going through the best of language learning from last year, from the last 12 months. And I want to share some of these amazing clips because, you know, some of these episodes are really in-depth and hearing some of it maybe a second time is going to be really beneficial for you. And the way that we're going to do it is going to try to tell a story, a language learning story, because it is an important part of being an expat. So the first clip that I have for you is from my friend, Anthony Metivier. Anthony is going to explain how he became interested in languages and how he started learning languages and his entire story in Germany and everything like this. Okay, let's dig in. I guess maybe give us a little bit of a background from the expat side of things, why you decided to go that route. Why did you end up leaving Canada and traveling and studying all these different languages? Well, it's a, an interesting story. I, as part of my PhD, I went to New York City so I could have access to better libraries. And while I was there, I met somebody who was from Germany. And long story short, we wound up getting married. And uh, I went, went to Germany uh, and just fell in love with the place. But um, that didn't work out. And uh, basically, I, I was able to to pick up German quite quickly after I got a teaching grant, uh, a research grant. And so that I, I just found some way to get there, to be able to stay in Germany. And it was a, a remarkable thing. I got a Mercator, it's called, from the Deutsche Forschung Gemeinschaft, which basically means German Research Society. And uh, that was incredible. And 
there, I mean, I, I would, I'll never forget the, the boss that I had being so impressed by how quickly I was learning German and then giving my first public lecture in German within a year. Or so it was just, uh, I mean, it wasn't that great, but it was still to have the, uh, the, the courage and the ability to actually be able to do it and be understood and answer some questions was was quite over the top, really. I'm blown away by it, but it can't be possible without memory techniques as far as I can tell. Um, and so how long, how, what, what kind of time frame are we talking that you were able to actually get up and speak German and do a presentation? I, I would say it was within a year. Um, wow. And there had been some German exposure before that, but I never seriously studied it. And I even took a course and I couldn't study it because it was a course that was filled with these Russian taxi drivers who just kept talking in Russian the whole time. I learned more Russian in the German course. And I, you know, I don't have extraordinary Russian by any means, but I, I literally learned more Russian than German in this course because of, of this. This is one of these state-sponsored sort of courses where everything goes. But um, yeah, when I got serious about it and applied these techniques, just sailing. Um, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, there's more to the story, of course, but it is uh, it is one of these things that if you really get into something and you have the strategies and tools to be able to do it, you can go really really quickly. Okay, that was fantastic. I really like Anthony. I like his methodology, his his way of doing this. And he was on the podcast for episode 114 and we became fast friends and did a whole bunch of work together. And we even did some special promos together on his magnetic memory course. So you guys can find that out at expatmoneyshow.com forward slash magnetic. He's got a master class on there and a whole bunch of information on language learning and how he uses memory palaces. It is really cool stuff. So if you guys want to learn more about it, you just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash magnetic. Okay, moving on. Episode 144, we had Sarah Tarvin on. And Sarah is going to describe for us next on how she first developed a passion for language learning. Basically, it's a lifelong passion. I can't remember a time that I wasn't interested. Yeah, I, I remember a moment in childhood. I would say I was about seven years old. I was, I was part of one of those little, uh, you know, gifted and talented programs in my very, I was a small town, Nebraska. I was a, a kind of a suburb, the military suburb outside of Omaha. And they put me in a program that was in the community library. It was after school. And they basically were introducing us to the idea that there were other countries. And so I'm like, we went after school and they had these, like, we made these little folders out of like manila folders. They put little stamps on them, a little handle. And that was our suitcase. Right. And then each day of the, the program was like a week long program. We went to a different country. And so we went to France and Spain and Germany. And so they would have like themed snacks from each country. And we'd watch a little, you know, it was in the eighties, a little VHS about the country. And then they would teach us that like in Spain, they say, and in France, they say bonjour for, you know, greetings. And this just blew my mind because I was like, hold on. <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> so what do you want about this hola nonsense? When I realized that there were entirely different languages out there that opened the door to these other cool places that were, you know, interesting and beyond the borders of my small town, I just was immediately hooked. I could not get enough of it. It was like being a spy with a secret code. That was the moment that 
really turned me on both to travel, which has become a lifelong passion, and then also the languages. And so around that same time, you know, I was, I was a hyperactive kid. I needed to be into everything. And so my parents found me a local woman who was, who happened to be French and she would just allow kids issue it, you know, it was French tutoring, but basically what it was, was once a week for a couple of hours, I'd go to her house and we'd play in French. And so that's how I started learning French. And after that one was not enough. So I just kept going. I love that full episode with Sarah for episode 144. Her methodology for children learning languages, I think, is super important. And I know it really affected the way that I've developed language programs for my kids. Okay, next up, we have Chase Warrington. Chase is an American expat who is living in Spain. And here he is to discuss the importance of learning a second language. And so most of your friends that you've met there, they're Spanish, they're expats, they're digital nomads, foreigners, locals. What's the, what's the mix there? I would say about 75% Spanish and 25% expat. And most of those expats coming from other European countries. Another, there's a lot of Dutch here in Valencia in particular. There's like 23 flights a day between Valencia and, and the Netherlands. So you have a lot of Dutch here. And there's not a ton of Americans in Valencia. There's not a ton of... We, we have some Australian friends, some British friends as well. But yeah, it's a it's... It's got a very local feel. Like when you 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 should speak Spanish here, for instance. Like it's not one of the cities where, just speaking on Valencia in particular, it's not one of the cities where if you don't speak any Spanish, you're going to be 100% comfortable. You should you should be able to speak some Spanish. You'll get by without it, but but it it feels important to have Spanish. That's not the case in a lot of European major cities. You know, you can walk in and speak English just fine. So, but it, it, there there is an expat community, but I'm not super tapped into it necessarily, but it's it's there for people that crave it. And your language ability, did you speak Spanish before you arrived? Did you learn while you're there? Are you still English only? What's the language situation like? I, I speak conversationally in Spanish. I'm not fluent. I've, I struggle with some of the technicalities of like switching to subjunctive and uh, and back and forth between different tenses. But I have, the the way I phrase it is I have Spanish friends that don't speak English and we have very deep conversations and true friendships in Spanish. So I, I feel totally comfortable in Spanish, but also like, for instance, I got offered to do an interview today in Spanish, very like kind of professional work-based. And I didn't feel hundred percent comfortable doing that. And so did you say yes, or you said, no, you, you did it and felt uncomfortable. Or you said no and felt comfortable. <laughs> I said, no, gracias. <laughs> uh, we, we switched to English. The guy spoke like fluent English and I was like, yeah, this is going to be a lot better experience for everyone in, in English. So yeah, I'm, I'm in that realm. And I, I didn't speak much before I came here. I digital nomaded through Latin America and, um, and tried to pick up some there, particularly in Ecuador. But the difference between Spanish and Ecuador and Spanish and Spain is like <laughs> Scottish and Texan. You know, it's just <laughs> totally two two different op- opposite ends of the spectrum. So I could I could count, do some ple- pleasantries, say hello, things like that. But I I settled into it when I got here. Nice one. Well, I think the language is really important, especially if you're going to live there for four years. I mean. Yeah, you, yeah. you kind of have to learn the language. I mean, people keep telling me, "Ah, oh, it's okay. Google Translate. Google Translate works everywhere." And I'm like, "Yes, technically, you might be able to, you know, get yourself understood or or communicate with someone." But what a barrier to have to work through using technology at all times. I mean, there's so much personality and heart that 
comes through in a language where you're really not going to get that by just using your phone as a translation app. Yeah, absolutely not. How, how do you feel? Uh, I know your, your Spanish is, is pretty good, but how, how about like in particular in Panama? Like, do you, do you feel, because I, I know there's, it's, it's got the close ties with America. A lot of a business from the U.S. is done there. Do you feel, is it, is it necessary to, to speak Spanish or do you feel like, like it's like a, a nice bonus that you, that you learned it? I think that it's very easy to survive here without speaking any Spanish whatsoever. But probably you would guess I'm not interested in just surviving. I mean, I at all times am looking to thrive. So I've worked very hard on my Spanish over the last couple of years. I mean, a lot of private tutors, a lot of courses. You know, if you guys have listened to the show for any length of time. Check out Ollie Richard's course. If you guys go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language, you're going to be able to find those programs. I've used them. My, my spouse has been using them. My mother's used them. We've all had really great luck with it. So yeah, I think that in Panama, you can get by with English only and you'll get surprised at times when people do speak English. Sometimes you'll be in an Uber or something like that. I'll be chatting away with my wife in English and then all of a sudden, you know, the guy will ask a question for directions and he turns around and speaks perfect English. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I should have been a little bit more careful. You know, was I thinking, was I talking about something private? So you can't assume that people don't speak English here, but even a little bit of Spanish will go a long way. It's good to have and, you know, you can pick it up as you go. But I think that what happens a lot of times is someone moves to a new country, finds their expat bubble and then stays within that. And then maybe they might be able to say, you know, they want, you know, agua con gas or something and, you know, pollo and then this is it. You know, like they can order their food. But, you know, to have a real conversation or to understand, you know, full sentences, they're really going to struggle on that. I mean, at this point in my Spanish, I can sit down with a group of Panamanian friends and, you know, go out for drinks and have dinner and converse completely in Spanish, tell jokes and laugh and things. All right. If I go to the bank and we're talking about, you know, business accounting information or large wire transfers and, you know, uh, you know, business Spanish. Okay. I might be appreciative if the banker I'm working with works in English or, you know, um, going through immigration work. I mean, okay, I work with someone locally who helps do the immigration work for my company for people wanting to relocate to Panama. I mean, those people are bilingual. Even when I go through the process, I want to make sure I know exactly what's being said because there's repercussions if you get it wrong. You know, if you're out having beers and eating chicken, like my example, I mean, it's like, well, you, you got it wrong. Big deal. You laugh and you move on. You, get, you messed up the joke. The punchline was off, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're not going to get like expelled from the country or something, or, you know, your, your half a million dollar wire transfer to buy a place is not going to go to the wrong account. Like, I mean, it's an example, but I mean, you want to make sure this stuff is real, like it's true and you got it correct. So, so that's my perspective on Spanish in Panama, I suppose. In our next clip, I'm going to be speaking with John Fotheringham and talking about his language learning and studying habits, how he went through this, how he first got into languages. There's so much in this next clip. I hope you enjoy. John was on episode 147. If you like what John has to say, make sure you go back and listen to that full episode. So why don't we take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you get interested in foreign languages and becoming an expat and all of these types of things? I want to dig into all of this. Uh, so it was kind of accidental. I originally was studying industrial design of all things in university, but I happened to take an intro linguistics class a couple of years in actually my degree and actually just fell in love. And I thought, 
I, I got to do this for my life. This is just too fascinating. So I, I changed degrees to linguistics three years in to university, basically started over. There was hardly any overlap between the two. And then as part of that, I started learning Japanese. Uh, you had to pick one language to focus on. So that's the one I decided, you know, and just an easy one, you know, something I think I'm kidding. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, I just, and I also dabbled a little in Mandarin Chinese uh, in university. And then after I graduated, I went to Japan uh, as part of the JET program, which some of your listeners might be familiar with. It's a government sponsored program where they place you as an assistant language teacher in a junior high or a high school somewhere in Japan. And that's kind of how my my expat journey started. We can, I'm sure, get into the the rest of it later on. So did you, so you actually went over as an English teacher and then from there, okay, okay. Yeah. So it started, there's in that program, there's two different positions. One is an assistant language teacher, which I did the first year. Other position, which is called a coordinator for international relations. And if you can speak enough Japanese, you can then work in a government office. And so my second year I applied and I got that job by the skin of my teeth. I mean, Basically, I got to Japan with broken Japanese. And in that first year of living in a pretty rural area where I had not many options, if I wanted to a social life, it was in Japanese. And so that's a great way, by the way, if you want to force yourself to get fluent fast. So, so I did. And I, I had enough Japanese. I wouldn't say it was perfect. Still isn't. Um, far from. But I had enough ability then to, yeah, to work for the government. And that was, it was pretty wild. I mean, it was uh, pretty intense at times in translation you know, there was a, a time when a delegation came to the prefecture to go to a cancer research center. And I show up the morning of, and they said, okay, John, today you're going to be the interpreter. They're doing a PowerPoint presentation on the latest cancer findings at the, the research center. So I've got the little mic, you know, and the thing in my ear, and I'm trying to simultaneously interpret what they're saying. Stuff I understand it was in English, let alone in Japanese. So that, you know, that kind of thing was pretty intense. Well, there's one thing being able to speak a language well enough so you can order your dinner and maybe get directions or something like that. There's another being a translator for, you know, medical procedure stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty big delta between those two things. And yeah. yeah. In our next clip, I'm going to be discussing with Anthony Metivier the importance of learning a language and how it actually prevents Alzheimer's and degenerative brain diseases. So this is something applicable to everyone and something that is a really viable option if you have a concern about these types of things. And just to keep your mind fresh, he really lays out the importance of language learning. By the way, one of the reasons to be doing this is not merely language learning on its own, but all of that... Um robustness in your brain chemistry, the strengthening of these dendritic spines and synapses and all that sort of stuff, neurons, it leads to what's called cognitive reserve. And that helps fight and fend off dementia and Alzheimer's. So the investment here and the return on your investment is massive, not only mood boosting, not only language learning gains, but long-term fortitude against the forces that could take your memory from you. And not only that, take your quality of life. So yeah, this is worth everything. I mean, I hope my own joy and happiness expresses that. And I'm not alone. Tony Buzan was a mentor of mine, creator of the World Memory Championships. That dude, before he went to the Great Memory Palace in the sky, happiest person I ever met. Harry Lorraine, famous author of Memory Memory Books. He's in his 90s now happy as pie, right? 
and he's still doing magic tricks and you can watch his birthday <laughs> magic tricks that he does for others on his birthday. And he's in his nineties and he's just exuding joy and mental sharpness. And his magic tricks are elaborate. I mean, to use that word again, they're intense. They, they require a lot of, uh, Work. So if you want to be a vibrant older person in your twilight years, which will be very important as an expat, right? Because as you know, there's it, it, there's different challenges to, to show up for uh, in the health systems and so forth. You want to be doing this in order to promote your own brain health. Our next clip is with Sarah Tarvin again. Now, this conversation is really important and I just love her philosophy and how she goes about learning languages. In this conversation, we're going to be discussing the different mindsets and the wins that go along when learning a second language and how important it is to manufacture them and set them up and celebrate them. Okay, let's get into it. I feel like, especially as we become more interconnected globally, we, we've got to be multilingual and starting young is just the easiest way to do it. So I know I get these people who are like, oh, Travel is so easy now. You just use Google Translate for everything. I'm like, no, like, <laughs> don't do that. It's, oh, it's so I mean, bad. If there's anything, you should be using the new abilities of technology to make language acquisition easier on yourself, not relying on the technology to do it for you. I mean. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that actually does touch on kind of the, the next suggestion I do have for families is at the very least, you can use pro programs. You know, like I was saying, you want to attach it to something fun. So ideally, if you have a kid who's really interested in learning cooking and you can find somebody who speaks, you know, French or Italian or Hindi while they cook, that's the way to do it is make it attached to some, some hobby. But things like Duolingo are gamified. So it has to have that game aspect to it. It has to be something, something fun. So yeah, you can absolutely use Rosetta Stone, Duolingo, any of those programs, but well, it's not as good. <laughs> I think my listeners know how I feel about both of those programs. An alternative <laughs> would be to go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language and check out my buddy Ollie Richards programs, who is amazing and does story learning and his stuff is really, really good. A very, very dear friend of mine and I am fully drank the Kool-Aid with him and his oh, method absolutely. of teaching languages. Yeah, Ollie's approach is 100% dead on with the reading approach. And again, as a, a teacher, I always have to point out one reason some people aren't successful in language learning is because we're assuming that we're all the same as learners and we all need the same things. For sure. And people need to first understand who they are as a learner before they can understand which program or which approach is going to resonate with them the best. For me, I'm a verbal learner and reading is 100% the best way to do it. And Ollie's approach of starting right off the bat with these beginning texts that he has created for so many different languages, it's, and the, the sense of accomplishment when you finish one of the beginning, not like, who cares that it's a super cheesy, easy beginner novel? You're like, I just read a book in Japanese. Yeah, like full stop. Like, right. <laughs> like it is a proper 200 page book. I mean, I've gone yeah. through a number of them in Spanish. And his programs and stuff like that. I mean, that's like literally sense of accomplishment. I oh, mean, sure. You know, yeah. And I think that that is so important. If you can celebrate wins along the way, and this is 
getting maybe away from the child aspect, but probably not. I mean, if the child can celebrate wins and feel like they're accomplishing something, then it's probably going to motivate. But I know for sure in me learning Spanish, as I'm able to do new things in my target language, the more motivation I have. It's like the more I want to do. Now I'm, you know, my Spanish is getting to the point where I'm like, hmm, I think next year I'm going to start learning Portuguese. And I studied Mandarin for many years in the past. And my Mandarin is terrible. I mean, I've been married to a Chinese woman for six years and my Mandarin should be at a completely different level, but it's not, but that's okay because there's still an opportunity. And now I have the motivation to try again and try to get it a lot better. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and you touch on something really important there. All of the myths about language learning just completely bust them. They're, none of them are true. It's all about mindset and shifting your mindset. So the wins is huge. It's the same, you know, my, the other half of, of kind of what I do is goal achievement coaching, which language acquisition coaching is goal achievement coaching, just a super specific niche of it. You set the goal to learn a language. In everything, you have to have those micro steps that you can celebrate wins for because Otherwise, you're just feeling, especially with languages, so many people don't want to take that risk because they don't want to sound stupid. And when you can have that, I read the book, I understood the song, I ordered the food. Those moments are so key. So yeah, celebrate those micro wins. Absolutely. Up next, we're going to be talking to John Fotheringham, and we're really going to dig into the philosophy of language learning and what he learned living in Japan and Taiwan and how he set things up. We're also going to be talking about anchoring and different techniques and strategies for language learning. Okay, let's dive in. But the things specifically, I, I can say there are some things that, for example, about Japan or Taiwan, which I lived in later, we can talk about later, the education system. So having taught there, and seeing how they how they actually teach things, especially something like a language, it's really inefficient and ineffective. As anyone knows, who's if you're Japanese and you're listening, you know, you know, you you've gone through that system and you realize, like, oh, I studied English every day for ten years and can't order a coffee, you know, to save my life. It's not your fault. It's not it's not their fault. They they didn't not try hard enough. It's that the system and the method is highly ineffective. They, you know, they treat languages as the subject to be memorized and tested somehow, assuming that that'll somehow translate into being able to have a conversation like this. It just, just doesn't work. Well, I don't think that there's many things in the world that actually lend themselves very well to rote. I mean, rote memorization is just a horrible method for learning things. I had a terrible time with anything in school with rote and now that's, I mean, I've, I've developed my own techniques for learning anything and everything, whether that's tax law or immigration or, or languages. I mean, I'm not trying to memorize it. It's just a, a bad way to go about it. It is. Yeah. 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 At best, I think some people can get by with that method, but those are the exceptions. The vast majority of people, I mean, I, it's hard to think of a worse way to go about learning a language and just trying yeah. <laughs> to force feed it into your brain, yeah. you know, cause our, our brains don't care that we think it's important. The brain's going to decide if it's important and how does the brain decide if something's important enough to spend all this energy and physical resources to create new neural connections, to wrap those with myelin, to speed up the, 
the transfer information, you know, it's a very expensive process. So it's not going to invest that unless it decides this is important, you know, for probably one of the four F's, right? You have feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. (laughs) (laughs) See what I did there? Yeah. If it doesn't relate to one of those things or our capacity to do one of those four things, it's probably not going to spend the time. So I don't care how many times you look at a flashcard or try to memorize a a specific kanji. It's not going to do it. So to that end, what you can do is you can engineer into your language study or whatever you're learning, it's tax law or whatever else, you can add in elements of those four Fs. You know, you can, you know, this is kind of controversial, but like you can sexualize the content in your mind, you know, because our brains attach onto sexual content. Like I am trying to come up with an idea on how I could do that with tax law. I'm not sure that the, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure that it's going to be a very pleasant sight in my mind's eye, but (laughs) well, there's, there's something I could think of, but it's not just the government just, (laughs) yeah, that's, that's where I was going, but, but there's other things, you know, there's like, I don't know if familiar with Tony Bazan, but he is a memory expert. He passed recently, I think sadly, but he talked a lot about how to like attach more emotions and things to things you're trying to memorize, make things huge, make things tiny, make things moving, make things colorful. You add more mental barbs that your brain can then attach onto and you make it more emotionally meaningful and relevant. So then your brain goes, okay, this must be important because there's a lot of emotion attached to this. And then it'll stick without even really trying. We had Anthony Metevier on the podcast and he does some amazing work. And I'm a big fan of his types of things. I always found it was very interesting because he called his program memorization. And for me, memorization is a dirty word. I mean, for me, I think of public school and like I said, wrote. And then, but when you start to learn about his techniques and what he does, it's actually not really memorization. I mean, he's doing things that you're talking about, like putting things in context, attaching meaning to it and anchoring things that you already know and understand. And he teaches memorization for languages as well as for tax law and everything else. I mean, if you're a scientist and you need to do formulas, it's like... Right. doesn't matter. Yeah. he. I know one of the things he's known for is the sort of memory palace idea where you put put different things into a, I say physical with air quotes, but in your mind, you imagine things in a space and that's just yet one more layer of having something to attach to. You have a construct, you have a context in your brain where it's easier to recall it. Because that's often the problem with recall of something is there's no trigger. There's nothing to find, you know, you're trying to find that file on your hard mental hard drive and you, there's no tag, there's no, you know, it's not in the right folder. We, we don't have a search function, unfortunately, other than just emotional memory. Uh, but yeah, his stuff is fantastic. And where John Fotheringham finished, Anthony Metivier is going to pick up and we're going to be discussing the science of memory recall. Is if you, as many people do, get on your app store and you download these apps in language learning that, you know, say, what was this word? And, you know, you're supposed to answer it and you self-test and all that sort of stuff. If you show this material to yourself, maybe you'll remember it over time. There's different studies that show different rates. But the reality is, is that this may be scientifically the case that if you show it to yourself uh, enough amount of times, you'll you'll recall it. That doesn't mean that it'll happen for you, right? Because if you're not actually engaged with the information, it doesn't matter whether it's on a card or in a software or in a memory palace. You've got to. It's called active recall in 
in the memory science. You, you've got to, to try. You've got to actually go, what the heck was that there? Oh, it was Yul Brenner, right? What was he doing? Well, his lungs were somehow, you know, exploding or whatever. And then you go, oh yeah, you're a young guy, right? Uh, because it was dice that were coming out of there. Now that's where your memory really starts to form. It doesn't really start to form when you do the encoding. It's when you actually do the recall. The so, recall. Okay, so what is the science for that? Because I remember reading and studying books about the physical aspect of building memories. And I mean, you actually, when they say, oh, you rewire your brain, I mean, that's kind of true. Like you create different pathways and w how does that work? The science from that side? Well, it's very simple. Your brain is made of chemicals. Your memories are stored inside of the chemicals or, I mean, this, it appears that they're inside the actual neurons, right? And so you have neurons that, uh, positive and negative ions flow through them. And then there are these synaptic connections. They're not really connected. They're like decoupled uh, in some sense. And as the positive and negative ions flow, if they're coupled in just the right way with the dendritic spines, which is where I think some of the memories are stored, and those dendritic spines are really plump, then it just connects, right? And it's sort of decentralized because, again, you have episodic memory, figural memory, auditory memory, visual memory, spatial memory, etc. The more that you have what's called elaborated, uh, elaborated the information, the more of these connections are there, the more the chemicals are filled with the stuff of memory and the faster those positive and negative ions can flow. Or in some cases, they can flow in the first place, even if it's not fast, right? Uh, because if they're not connected physically, there's no memory. Right. And so that's it's think of it like a, your, your think of your memory, not as a computer, not as film. Not I was literally just video. about to say that because, I mean, the first thing that always comes to my mind is it's like it's like a hard drive. No, but it's not really like a hard drive at all. I mean, it's more like plumbing. So, OK, the whole idea that evolution would evolve the notion of the memory palace is genius because that's exactly what's happening in your brain. It's like neighborhoods and the neighbor connected by plumbing, sewage, right? And water and electrical wires and highways. And the more that you strengthen the pipes, the better your neighborhood of memory flows and the less breakage you have. Because when you, as you know, when something goes wrong with plumbing, it's a mess, it's annoying, it's tedious to get fixed, and you have to hire specialists to do it, right? Uh, and they're not nice to have around, and you can't wait till they're gone. So build your networks properly, fertilize them, you know, and maintain them correctly, and then everything will flow, and you will never need uh, these people. But it's much more like neighborhoods. Okay, we're going to change gears a little bit. We're going to be discussing with Sarah Tarvin more of the language techniques coming up next. So the nitty gritty. And Sarah is going to be talking to us about children and how she teaches her child to be multilingual. With your expertise and your many, many years of studying languages, I'm really curious the, the methods that you think are best, quote unquote, for a child to acquire a language? 
So yeah, I'll start with what I use and have used for my daughter. So I don't generally, I don't use her, her given name publicly. I just call her baby lion or now she's not a baby anymore. So we just call her little lion. So on all of my media, um, people will see her reference to as little lion. That's kind of until she's old enough to give me the permission herself. That's what, what I use. There's no pictures of my kids up on the internet. I, I know I don't say the names of my kids either. I think yeah. that's a privacy yeah. thing for sure. Yeah, exactly. So with, uh, with little lion, with lion, what, what I've done from birth. So for the first six months, I used all eight of the languages in rotation two days at a time. And so what that looked like is realistically in those first months, you're not using a huge pool of vocabulary. There are really a limited number of phrases that you're saying with these, these kids. Are you hungry? Are you sleepy? Do you need a diaper change, et cetera? So for two days, I would speak English. Two, then the next two days, I would speak you know, Mandarin, two days Japanese, rotating through. It was a little more difficult to stay entirely in those languages for, like I said, my weaker languages. Arabic and Hindi are my weakest of the languages. In those cases, I, again, I had those list of the, the super common phrases. I, ha- I knew those, those phrases. And then, you know, if I needed to slip, she's, you know, about to, something spontaneous, she's going to fall, you know, if I need to switch to English, so be it. As long as those target phrases are in the target language. And I did that so that she was hearing those, those languages and structures from the beginning. And then I was constantly reading to her. So when she was sleeping, when she was just kind of there, I was always reading my novels out loud to her. um, And I was reading novels in different languages. So I had a a German novel, I had a French novel, a Spanish novel, a Mandarin novel, etc. So I just, anytime we were still and she was resting or or playing quietly near me, I was reading out loud from a novel, which I did for two reasons. One, to hear that, that fluid flow of language in the target language. And then the other reason was because I was modeling reading from an early age to her. She's playing independently, she sees mommy reading. So we did that for about the first six months when, when it's just exposure. She's not, you know, she's not going to say her first word at three months anyway. So then once she got to be about seven months old, and particularly at that point, she went to school. I had to go back to work. So she went to daycare. So at that point, she began getting all the English she needed from the community, from, you know, from school, from grandma and grandpa, et cetera. So from then on, uh, because I wanted to s- develop stronger language skills, I speak with her 75% of the time in German. And so that's, that's essentially mommy's language. The other 20, well, so I would say then 20% of the time is I rotate through a language of the month or, or different languages. And that, this isn't, you know, there's no science to this. It's not like I'm not measuring time or anything. So at that point, I, I did drop the Hindi and Arabic for her because she's, she's gotten some exposure. And we now live in a community that is very, very heavily, it's, I'd say our community is at least 50% from India. So she can get the, the Hindi from the neighborhood as well. But so then the other languages, the, the Mandarin, Japanese, French, and Spanish, I'm rotating through with her in smaller doses. And, in, and then the, the remaining 5%, I do speak English with her you know, about 5% of the time because she's a toddler and I'm a human (laughs) and staying in a non-native language when somebody's throwing a temper tantrum where, you know, when she's got 102 fever, it's not worth it. 
Um, and so that's kind of my, the first point that I talk about with clients is that there is no perfect because I feel like that is one thing that prevents people from giving their children the gift of bilingualism or multilingualism is because they're like, well, you know, this is the best way to do it. And I'm not able to do this. Or, you know, I, I want them to speak Spanish, but my Spanish isn't fluent. Who cares? We are humans. Every little bit is a gift to, to their language abilities. So yeah, um, I, I make sure to tell clients that I do not do any kind of like perfect routine. <laughs> I absolutely slip into English. Uh, you know, if I've had a bad day, you know, we've, we've gone through some, from challenges here, I'm, you know, it's, it's okay. It's super yeah, Because okay. if you start beating yourself up about not being perfect, well, then you're not going to be motivated to continue. And when things get tough, then, I mean, you're just going to think it's not worth it, but it's like, no, actually you can, you can keep showing up every single day and do your best you can for that day. I get that completely. I think that's something to be said about parenthood in general. Right. You know? <laughs> like, it's hard. It's hard. There's no doubt. In our next clip, I'm discussing with Kevin Koskella from episode 143 about consuming content in a target language and how this can help your language abilities. I have a business partner with WorkHero, and we met online via my Freedom Loving podcast. So a few years back, he reached out to me and said, hey, I'm, I'm a listener of your podcast. I love your podcast. I'm an anarcho-capitalist living in Brazil. I'm in college, and I want to drop out of school, and I want to do digital marketing of some kind. Amazing. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, that, that's, that's so wild. And so I'm like, let's talk. Let's Because he wanted to talk. He's like, well, I want to talk. I'm like, yeah, let's get on a Zoom call. So we got on a Zoom call. And yeah, I mean, he was in college, but it was like he was on my level. You know, we were already on the same level. It doesn't matter how young he was. I was like, no, he's cool. And he, he was teaching himself at the time. He was learning English just online. Like he would watch videos on like Bitcoin and stuff like that. And that's how he was learning English. He wasn't doing traditional formal English classes. Yeah. Picking a topic that he was actually interested in and then devouring content based exactly. around that. That's the right way it to is. learn a language. It is. And sure. it's, it's amazing because that was like four years ago and his English has gotten so much better. And it's a lot of it has to do with that. It's like he's been, he, he does YouTube and uh, you know, now he, I mean, he's, he's completely fluent in English and, it, and no, no formal, I think he might've done a little bit of private tutoring, but, it, but mainly just YouTube videos. And Next up, Anthony Metever is going to jump on to speak to us about what is a memory palace? How does it work? What is the history and its implications for language learning? Okay. So you mentioned a word in there that I want you to deconstruct for us. So a memory palace, what is a memory palace? Very good uh, technique. It's thousands of years old, and it's basically just a mental recreation of a room or a building. And you don't have to use the word memory palace. Some people really don't like that. They don't gel with it. No problem. It was never called that uh, until recent periods. Anyway, it used to be called method of loci, which loci is a fancy word, the plural for locations. But it's also been called the journey method. It's been called Roman room method. There's oodles of terms. I had a client who called it, he just couldn't gel with any of these terms. So he called it apartments with compartments. The basic idea okay. is, is that too. you're just <laughs> taking space and you're mentally thinking about it in a particular way. 
And then if you're going to memorize a song or you're going to memorize a bunch of vocabulary, you just, you know, revisit the room in a particular order and you've placed associations along a journey. And those mental associations, there's some finicky little principles around it, but it's super easy and fun to do once that you get those principles uh, down, which is for different people, different amounts of time. But um, if you're willing to learn it, it pays off in droves. So I remember listening to one of your podcast interviews, and I think that you said the word anchor. It was that it can be difficult to memorize a new language because you don't have anything to anchor it to. Is that kind of how the memory palace works? Because you, it does like an association with, say, a physical object, obviously a physical object in your mind, or is that something different? It's exactly an anchor. And what it's a special kind of anchor. Because you're drawing upon stuff you already know. So you already know the journey from your bedroom to your kitchen, right? How much work did you have to do to remember how to walk to your kitchen from your bedroom? It's like it just happens on autopilot, right? Well, let's take something like Yel Yang Dao Biao Wa De Xin, right? Um, I'll kick myself if I'm getting this wrong later, but that can happen too. <laughs> but um, all I have to do is. Uh, I just think yell. Well, who do I know who yells a lot? Well, I don't know anybody who yells a lot, but um, I think of Yule Brenner. Now, why Yule Brenner? Because it's a Y sound, right? And to see Yule Brenner yelling, yell young guy, like I'm already halfway there, right? And then Lung, well, his lungs, Aqualung from, what's that band? I can't think of the name right now, but uh, it, it, this is another weird thing that'll happen is you, you you won't remember certain things. I think Ian Anderson plays in this band, but there's the song Aqualung and uh, you just have Yul Brenner's lungs just exploding now and with a dice, because die is dice, right? So Yul Young die. Then you just go on to the next thing. Now that's all happening where it's happening between the bedroom and the kitchen, but a little more strategy to where I place these things than that. But there you go. Yell young die. It's just that simple. Now, is it a one-to-one -one correspondence with every sound? No, not necessarily, but it's the foundation. It's the anchor. Okay. Continuing on with techniques, John Fotheringham and I are going to discuss the Japanese memorization method called Anki. So interestingly, Anki is actually Japanese for memorization. Oh, is it really? Memory. Okay. I think of it as a, as a method and, and maybe give some, some context for people who are not. Sure. So Anki is a, it's a spaced repetition flashcard app. And so spaced repetition, for those not familiar, you, the app uses this advanced algorithm to decide when to show you given information based on how you've performed with it in the past. So if something's super familiar and easy, you mark it easy, and then you don't get shown it again, or maybe not as often. If you struggle with a given card, then you'll be shown that more frequently and more often and in a shorter interval. The idea being that you want to be, you want to review content and information at this optimal time frame where it's just about to be forgotten. And then you see it one more time, and then it gets implanted deeper and deeper into your long-term memory. That's the theory, at least. I think it makes a lot of sense. I've done it a lot in the past. Recently, we talked earlier about things I've changed, how I do things in the past. I used to do a lot of Anki and a lot of space repetition flashcard work. I more now believe that I don't think it's bad. I do think it can help. I just think that it's boring 
and it takes a lot of time. I think if you only have a limited amount of time and if you're struggling to stick with language study, which this is probably almost everybody listening, I think you should spend that time reading content that's enjoyable and comprehensible, watching content that's enjoyable and comprehensible, and practicing speaking with a native speaker. If you do those three things, you're going to get fluent. And it's going to be a lot more fun along the way. The flashcards can maybe be a little bit of a supplement to that. You know, they can be your vitamin, your multivitamin, but they shouldn't be the meal. The meal should be immersing yourself in the language as much as possible. Well, okay. So here's another thing. What I noticed when I heard about Anki and I tried it for myself, I ended up spending so much time to create my cards and to build out my deck and find the most important words. I mean, hours and hours and hours trying to do this. And it was like, and all of that time in creating something, I wasn't actually using it. I wasn't, I mean, that wasn't study time. That wasn't practice time. That wasn't right. making friends. And, yeah. Like, it's like, I'm exactly. Yeah. And that's why I've kind of moved away from doing it. I mean, I, just a few years ago, I was in this phase where I was watching, there's this great tool called language learning with Netflix, where it creates these supercharged subtitles in Netflix in the browser version. They don't have it in the app, unfortunately, but what it does is it creates, it has the subtitle in the target language, subtitle in your language, and then it has a literal translation. So it has these three pieces, which you got to have exposure to the language, which is basically reading practice. You're listening as you read along. So you're connecting the pronunciation and the writing. So something like Japanese or Chinese, that's extra helpful. And then you see the literal translation. So you're like, oh, okay. So that's how they would say that in that language in the literal way. And the reason I bring this up now, they have the option to export saved words or phrases that you save while watching to Anki. Oh, so you can okay, then make cool. a, a flashcard deck based on authentic content that you've been watching. So it hits all the boxes for me. It's like, it's authentic content. It's comprehensible. It's interesting. You're learning in context and not just isolated words in a list, which is probably only second to rote memorization as like the worst possible way to learn a language. I know. I literally went on. It was like, <laughs> what is the 500 most important words in Spanish? And it's like, you know, try to get these and then copy them over. And then, and then I read from somewhere, oh, you shouldn't be trying to do a word for word translation. You should try to get pictures. So then I'm on like Google images, trying to download pictures and then upload them one by one. That takes forever. <laughs> it does. It does. I mean, it's the picture thing is, is cool. And I, I like, you know, Gabriel Weiner from Fluent Forever. That's kind of part of their method, which I think is great because then you're not creating this intermediate step of translating to your native language. You're creating a direct connection between meaning and sound, which is ideal. But yeah, you're right. It just, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And why do that when you can just watch something or read something for enjoyment, which admittedly, you're not gonna be able to do that until you get to kind of an upper beginner intermediate stage. So there is, there is a period of sock where you're going to have to go through some amount of conscious study just to know enough words to be able to then engage with authentic content. But you want to get through that period as quickly as possible and then jump to the, the authentic content. In our next clip, Chris Brohelm is going to be describing how he learned English using video games. 
you guys are going to love this one. My parents always said, oh, you've got such an ear for languages. And I was uh, already when I was 11 years old, uh, we were playing a lot of video games and there weren't really that many Danish language video games out there. So we had to learn English. You know, there's no chance. We had to do it to defeat these games. And and uh, by age 11, my inner monologue had changed to English. So for me, the language niche was always obvious. And, you know, it's a great niche because it's some, you don't have to be an expert at a foreign language to enjoy the benefits of it. So it's not like you have to learn everything about a language before you can use it. And also there's a, there's a huge market, right? The language learning industry is, a, I think, something like a, a five, six billion dollar in industry every year where people buy books and courses and apps. And, you know, you've probably seen all the language schools around. And, and so it just made sense. For me. I should, I've certainly spent my share <laughs> of that six billion dollars uh, in my journey in languages. So, yeah, I get that. It's not easy. It's not easy. So that's that's a cool it's a cool topic and there's a lot of flexibility in how you want to do it and of course you can talk about your own native language or you can you know you can learn about other languages so bring in people who know about that and provide the type of content that you feel comfortable with whether that's a video you know YouTube it's so funny that actually you say that because I mean okay we're having this conversation today in English and I swear to God if you ever told anybody that English was not your first language. Like I, I'm actually mind blown when you remind me of that right now, because I never speak to you as if I'm speaking to someone who speaks English as a second language. And my wife speaks English as a second language. And I talk to her in a different way than I talk to someone I would speak to as a native speaker. I mean, that's pretty wild. Like I've hired you to good help business me card, right? <laughs> in, in copywriting before to help me with my business. And you speak English as a second language. Like, that's rad, man. That's good for you. That's props. Well, thank you. And like I said, it's a great business card, right? But the funny thing is that it's hard to replicate that because, it, like I said, it was at a time where all the games, as a kid, you just want to you just want to do good in your hobbies, right? And we were playing a lot of video games. So that was the example I gave. And then when I grew up, I really grew up with online gaming, you know. So if I'd been born 10 years younger, I'm not sure I would have had the same level of English because you just didn't have that community. But from maybe I don't know, 10 until 18, you know, I would log on every day and speak English to people. And so that's why it's really hard to replicate in other languages. And you really need to have that intense. Yeah, and probably if you were born 10 years later then it would have been, they would have had translations in the game and you would have had all of the text that came up in Danish. So maybe that also would have not been good for you and you wouldn't be in the same place. In our next clip, Anthony Metivere is going to jump back in to flesh out the memory palace and the techniques for scaling this idea. Let's talk about the location. You said that there's more to it like you're strategic with where you place things. Mm. What does that mean? Why, why do you have to be strategic? Well, when I first learned these techniques, I was banging my head against the wall because every memory training says, start at your door of your house and move inward. And I did this and I quickly found that I was leading myself into a dead end because when you get up to the master bedroom, 
where do you go from there? Well, you jump out the window. Like, it's just crazy. I don't know why that all these trainings do this. So I just realized after some thought, what if I start at the dead end, which I now call the terminal station, right? Just start there. And then you're moving outward and you never have a dead end. And over the years that I've been teaching this, it's just helped so many people. For so does reasons. that mean like, so, so say that you started the master bedroom, you did your whole house. And then once you had kind of gone that far, then you went out your front door and to your next door neighbor's house or to the, the shop next door. So the memory palace can actually be like your neighborhood or a larger area. Yeah. You can just keep adding right now. There's many different ways that you can add on and you don't want to do it in such a way that it gets so big, that then it becomes a mental chore to manage it. So what we do for there is rather than necessarily connecting it to your neighbor's house, let's say your neighbor is named Bob. Well, now that's your Bob memory palace or your B memory palace, right? So if um, you're learning a language and you want to uh, memorize a bunch of words, one of the fastest ways you can do it is get your friend Bob in the terminal station, let's call it, and you have a bunch of B words in that language and you just follow him around through his home. Now you might not know where his master bedroom is, so just leave that out, but you know where the pool room is and you know where the kitchen is, etc. And so now you got to memorize something like Bonbreschend or something in Germany and in German, and you have him in the pool table doing something that reminds you of the sound and meaning of that word. And then you have another B word and you follow him to the kitchen. And then that's where that word is. Now, uh, instant objection. People will say, yo, that sounds like one word at a time, right? Uh, how could that ever scale? And the reality is that's a good objection, but it doesn't last, doesn't work out because you have to learn one word at a time anyway, <laughs> no matter what, like there's no getting around learning one word at a time, but it scales because you can have not only these multiple memory palaces that are alphabetically encoded so that you can be a lot faster because Bob's going to help you. What came next? Well, he started with Bonbreschent. And now we go to the next word, and it's also a B word, so you don't have to think that much. It's got to be a B word, right? But also, you can add phrases to these individual words later. And then you get into have, you begin to have a compound effect, right, very quickly because you just – you have a pool table, for example, and now you could write an entire sentence in the language along that pool table and have Bob interacting with it or other characters. And uh, – that word, that sentence now has 10 words in it instead of one. And those other words may or may not be in other memory palaces, but they can be, or they, they don't have to be, but you just scale very quickly. Continuing on, John Fotheringham and I are going to discuss grammar and its application with memory, how these fit in, when you should be learning grammar and how you go about it, and really how not to learn it. Let's dig in. I don't know how you are with your English grammar. I'm, I'm a professional author. I'm, I'm an author for a living. My grammar in English is like, I have no idea what the English grammar is. Like I have no, I, if someone sat me down and wanted me to explain, I would, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yes. And that's, that's proof that it's subconscious. You know it intuitively. You don't know it consciously and you have to be, this is the irony of all ironies, right? You have to be taught consciously to explain something, you know, intuitively, you know, implicitly, you know, and I did that. So I, when I was in college, I also did TESOL 
teaching English to speakers of other languages. And I got certified in that. And I learned how English works. I learned the mechanics. I learned the why behind the what. And it's fascinating. And as a linguist, I loved it. I, I ate it up. But when I'm teaching English, one of the things I always have to do, and it takes a lot of repetition with learners, is to convince them that the why is interesting, but it's not necessary. All you need to know is the what. You just need to, to get the what, what, what through like all the things we've talked about, the repetition, through comprehensible input. The why will not help you that much with the what. Maybe a little. maybe Because again, it's, it's maybe more information to attach to the thing you're trying to learn. And so then your brain has more opportunities to remember it and to encode it. But it's not necessary. It really isn't. And it drives me nuts when people think like, oh, if you don't know why something is true, then you don't really know it. I'm like, no, just you're talking about two very different memory systems and different, you know, there's two kinds of memory, basically. There's declarative memory and there's procedural memory. And you need both for a language, but the procedural part, the how of it, the, you know, the how to ride a bike is what really matters. And that's the part that most people don't get enough of because they spend all their damn time. And I say, damn, all their damn time uh, <laughs> doing the declarative stuff, memorizing those flashcards we talked about, you know, trying to consciously remember the, the details of it. And they don't get nearly enough time on the procedural side, which is the how. But why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that people gravitate to one side to this? It's easy. It's safe. The procedural part in it, by definition, is going to expose you to real-time conversations. It's going to, you know, you can't pause a native speaker like you can your Netflix show. You can't look up words you don't know as you go. You know, it's real-time, it's messy, it's chaotic, it's terrifying. You're afraid of making mistakes. You're afraid of not understanding them. You're afraid of being misunderstood by them. You know, it's a lot messier, but there's no alternative. You know, you can't skip that suck. You can't, you can't get to fluency by studying alone, unfortunately. In this next clip, Sarah Tarvin and I describe your best friend in language learning and how to make things very, very simple. Listen into these techniques here. In the beginning, I would say about 50% of the words were cognates between the main languages, which makes sense because those are, she's going to be hearing that. Maybe just explain to the listeners what a cognate is. What a cognate is, yeah. So a cognate is a word that is going to either be exactly the same or look or sound the same between two languages. So an example would be her first word was Buch, which is the German word for book, but they sound exactly the same. They're spelled differently, but it's Buch book it's the same word essentially so her favorite word right now is shoe which is again the same between the two languages so mm -hmm. english this is, is this is your best friend when you're trying to learn spanish because if you don't know the word you just say the the english word and then you just add a spanish flair to the end of it and like chances are you got it correct Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, on the flip side, there are a few false cognates between languages, which we're, we're having a few issues with, not issues, but I can tell that they confuse her a little bit. But an example would be like in English, the word gift. In German, the word gift means poison. So you definitely don't want to give somebody a gift in German. So there are a few, a few things that would be confusing. But as far as the words go, so most are cognates. They're non-cognates. She does have a few more English because she's spending all day with her, her peers in school and then German. And she has a few that are like mixed between the languages. So like her word for bubbles that she used the other day was pow-pow bowls because the Mandarin word for bubbles is pow-pow. 
So she is mixing some of those up, but that's very normal. And that self-corrects with time. So her favorite books and nursery rhymes, her favorite TV show is Chupi, which is a French cartoon. Her favorite books are in Japanese for the most part. So she's very comfortable in, in all of them and is not in any way linguistically delayed, which is one of the most common myths with multilingual children. And continuing on from Sarah's comments about children learning languages, we have John Fotheringham here to discuss with us the different methods of language learning for children. However, huge caveat here with children. The way I advocated earlier using this remembering the kanji technique or building these creative, crazy stories in your mind, that is much more conducive to the adult brain, the way it works. I'm not saying it's impossible with children. But children have much less life experience to build upon. They still have stories. And so I do think you can still use the story-based approach, the narrative-based approach to go about characters instead of just the rote. But they might have to rely a bit more on rote memorization than would be ideal for an adult. Might have to be a mix of the two. So that's kind of my, my caveat there. I also want to say, I don't think we mentioned this earlier, but I think a lot of people that are not language nerds or linguists, they tend to think about language as this one thing, you know, reading, writing, speaking, listening, it's like, it's all one thing, but really they're two very different things. Listening and speaking are innate human abilities that we evolved to be able to do. You know, it's literally hardwired into our genetic code to acquire whatever language we are exposed around us, listening, speaking, reading, writing is a human technology. It's an invention. Oh, so good a point. Exactly. Yes. And, and you're not going to naturally acquire reading and writing just from exposure. It takes a whole different kind of thing. It does take education. It does take practice, you know, actual conscious practice. So I just want to keep those two separate because how I advocate learning one is actually very different than the other. Well, because I mean, with our children, we follow what is effectively called an unschooling method. Now saying that I will teach my child how to read, write, and spell, and basic arithmetic. I believe with those building blocks, with those tools in the toolbox, we will be able to go forward. She will be able to go forward and teach herself the world. Like, I mean, it's anything and everything. I don't need to sit down with her and be like, the longest river in the world is, and you know, and like quiz her on these stuff and, and have her memorize. Declarative memory. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And I think to your point, learning how to learn, that's a lifelong skill that she can then apply to anything. But I think even more important than that, I mean, the, the technical how to learn stuff or memorize stuff is cool and it's important, but the most important fundamental thing is a passion for learning, a curiosity for learning. I think if you have that, if you fan that fire, fan those flames from a young age and keep fanning it and fanning it and helping them learn to fan it themselves, then they're unstoppable. And they'll figure out the how later, or they'll figure out other stuff. But the problem I have with so much of education, especially again in East Asia, not to beat that dead horse too, but it, I could not think of a better way to put out that flame than the way yeah. things are taught and learned. It's just, not only is it completely uh, top-down directorial, you're going to learn this and here's why, and you're going to memorize this. And if you don't pass this test, you're not going to get into this school and then you won't get a good job and then your life's over. And then we won't be able to live off you as old people. So <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's this whole like cascade of things, right? Ooh, good tying it back. That's a, that was a good yeah. one. 
That was fast. But I think that's ultimately what it is. It's like, you know, I I don't want to die old and poor alone. So you need to study this thing and do good in the test, <laughs> ultimately. And I need you to look good for us. It's a lot of, we didn't get into that earlier, but I think, again, with kind of a, from the ego perspective, it's like living vicariously through your children too, and having them do things that make you proud, which anyway, that's a whole other. Well, I think it's hilarious that I dropped out of school when I was 12 years old. And I go on and read 100 books a year and have for 20 some odd years. And now I look at all my buddies who went through school and college and university and master's and PhD, and they never picked up another book in their life. I mean, it's just like I did not have the desire to learn and to self-educate beat out of me as a child. And therefore, it's not gone. Therefore, I keep doing it. Therefore, I mean, I'm just... I. I'm a polymath. I have interest in so many different things and I'm an expert in so many different things. And for me, you have that passion. that's why. And you, exactly. And you had the freedom to do it the way you want. Yeah, exactly. 100%. So with my daughter, that's the same type of thing. I mean, interest-based learning. That's why we are currently developing a high school, an online high school with one of the greatest minds in the United States for curriculum development. He's opened something like 20 to 30 Montessori schools in the United States. Oh, wow. And I'm business partnering with him to do a special program for expat and international families, for high school students, for kids. And it will be tons of interest-based learning. It will take a lot of things from the homeschooling and unschooling movement. He described it to me on one of our first meetings is unschooling by professionals. And I was like, yes, that's it. Chris Brohallum comes back on and we're going to be discussing the joy of language learning and polyglots and how all of this fits together and and really what you need to decide and what you're going to take out of the language. Listen in. But that's another good point that to get joy from a language, you don't actually need to be fluent. You don't need to certainly don't need to be perfect, but you don't need to be fluent. I mean, even small things like I learned words in Swahili and I learned words in Nepalese and I learned words in Korean that I were it was able to use. And yeah, just getting a smile out of somebody when they look at me and I'm, I am clearly not Korean. And it's like, you know, the, that's fun. I mean, that's the it doesn't best. have to always be about fluency, even though, I mean, your podcast is called Actual Fluency, but I think that you probably, on, you will probably agree with me that uh, all spectrums of language learning can derive joy. Actually, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and the name actually is based on what do you, where do you want to be? You know, do you want to be a language expert? So what is your level of actual fluency? Is it uh, conversational? Is it you want to write a doctorate in the language, you know? And I, I think it has to be a personal decision. And, and there's also a big debate on whether fluency actually means perfect or it just means like able to have a conversation. So the, you have a lot of uh, drama there, but uh, for non-language uh, <laughs> language learning uh, audiences, I think. Yeah, I think that's part of the the, the polyglot community arguing over uh, other people's Semantics. YouTube videos. And yeah. Basically. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. It's quite toxic. So uh, I wouldn't advise anyone to spend any time on that. But uh, in general, you want to make your language goals yours. You don't want to look at a YouTube video of someone speaking perfectly and then go, I can do that in three months. You know, it's just not possible. Uh, you want to do it according to what you can do, your experience, and your time, of course. Well, 
so I, I have quite a few friends who are polyglots, who are polyglot podcasters and producers of content in this space that, you know, people you've introduced me to or, you know, mutual friends and stuff like that. And so I have a little bit of a glimpse into the, the world of the polyglot space. And it is so funny because I just wouldn't expect there would be so much bickering between people <laughs> on, you know, like on conversations like this, like what is fluent? How long does it take to learn a language? And all this back and forth, you know, you can search on YouTube, you know, oh, uh, I learned French in a week or something. Yeah. And then it's like, and then other people making response videos, like this is ridiculous and you can't do this. And it's so funny because I mean, I love language learning and it has become a massive passion of mine over the last few years, but it's not my niche. So I'm the outsider looking in, but it's, it's, it's funny. Very, very funny. A lot of drama for sure. In our next clip, Kevin Casquella and I are going to discuss romance in Portuguese, not actually in Portuguese, but how he found romance in Brazil while he was traveling through there and started dating a girl and what that looked like coming from two different languages. This is a really funny clip. I think you guys are going to like it. I decided to stay for a month and just kind of get to know the area and get to know him and get, you know, sort of get some work done. And at the same time, I was like, you know, I'd, I'd like to meet uh, some locals. You know, I want to know what the women are like here. Like, what what is it like? And I, I never, I didn't know any Portuguese, zero. Like I took some Spanish, you know, like I knew a little bit of Spanish, but as you know, that doesn't help. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So <laughs> we had a whole conversation about this offline on how people who tell you that speaking Spanish will get you by in Brazil, they are wrong. It will not. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, there's so many, so many words are the same, but the, uh, the language is so different. And so I, I started taking some Portuguese lessons and I started getting on all the apps and, you know, like talking to women on different apps and like nobody knew English, nobody. I mean, there was so many conversations I had where it was just constantly translate, translate, translate. And and not one of them. I never ran into any anyone that knew English. I mean, I read a few people in in person, like just buying a coffee or something. Yeah. There were a few people that knew English, but but in, in on on the online world, but in the dating world, there was none. And so I was like, well, this isn't going to work. How is this ever going to work? I mean, I can't speak their language. They can't speak my language. But surprisingly, shockingly to me, they wanted to meet. Like almost like every time I got into a conversation, they're like, "Oh, let's meet, let's meet," and I'm like, "We can't even, we can't even communicate. What are we gonna do?" But everybody wanted to meet, so so then I was like, "Well, I might as well get picky and you know find ones that I want that I actually want to meet that genuinely um, seem interesting and I'm attracted to." And you know, so I might as well go down and 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 you know get really selective with this. So I did, and I uh, ended up meeting somebody who seemed really interesting. I was really attracted to her pictures, but I thought this is never going to work. Never thought it would work. I thought it would just be like we'll go and we'll we'll goof around, we'll have a drink, and we'll just be like laughing. And it's stupid. Like we can't. We, we have to use Google Translate. Like how's that going to work? So anyway, we went on. We had a date, and it was a lot of Google Translate, and it went surprisingly well. Like we were laughing almost the whole time. And we, 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 yeah, we had, we had an absolute blast. <laughs> and so I ended up dating her the whole time, the rest of the time I was in uh, Floripa and I got back home and I, I texted her and we were, we were exchanging some text messages and we both realized that we fell in love with each other. 
in, in not short of a time, it was like three weeks. And so, I mean, this has never happened, nothing like this has ever happened to me before. The Brazilian way is much, much, much different than the American way when it comes to dating. There's much more directness. If, if they like you, they say, I like you. <laughs> and this is, this is not <laughs> something that happens in the US. It never, I mean, all my years of, of dating and relationships and everything, that takes so long to get to the, the actual genuine, like, oh, how do you feel about me? It's like, no, we have to play games. We have to like pretend like we don't like them. And, and if somebody... Yeah, exactly. And then not call back like the following day or you have to wait however many time. Yeah. I remember I remember all of that silliness from when I was a single man. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's so for me, it was a different world. I mean, coming to Brazil was a completely different world. And I'm like, yeah, this works for me much better. I, I love the directness. And to round out our episode, we have Chris Broholm here to talk about his experience for learning Hungarian. This is really funny. I love this clip. I hope you guys do too, because it really just throws everything that we've just been talking about completely on its head. All right. Before we get into the UK, did you study Hungarian language when you were in Hungary? <laughs> I did. Okay. Not extensively. And uh, I will say it's the hardest language I've ever, ever seen anything of. If anyone knows anything about Hungarian, I mean, it's it's impossible basically, but it's also very cool. You know, uh, it, it's a, a language it, blogger telling you that the language <laughs> is impossible. Chris, yeah. come on. I thought well, that was like, you weren't allowed to do that. Like they're going <laughs> to, they're going to crucify you now. I'm only human, you know, for me it was impossible and uh, no, it wasn't impossible, but I think, you know, Hungarian has this quality where all the meaning is attached to the end. They call it agglutinative and that makes it extremely complicated because you have to remember what do all these endings mean. And, you know, I wasn't really, I feel like there's a lot of kind of myths about language learning. And one of them is that if you go to the country, you'll easily learn the language. <clears throat> and actually what I found was that it was a lot easier for me to study in Denmark because I didn't have the worries of moving countries was. You know, it was my first, uh, well, I say my first, you know, it's really my fifth language or something, four or fifth maybe at the time, probably fifth language, yeah. But it was my first sort of in-country experience of studying a new language. So there you have it, the best clips from the last 12 months on language learning. Oh my goodness, what a journey. I had so much fun putting this episode together and going through all our back episodes about language learning and going into all of these little gems. I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. I hope that it motivated you and inspired you to learn a new language. Language learning has been a real passion of mine for the last few years, and I'm really excited to meet all these amazing people and have them on the show and share the best tips from around the world. If you guys want a really solid program for learning a second language, you can go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash languages. And there are some excellent courses there. I highly encourage you check them out. That's it. I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. Join us next Wednesday, where we're going to be talking to my very dear friend, Mark Clare. We're going to be talking about his journey to Mexico as an expat and how that all unfolded. This is a fantastic conversation. You guys are going to love it. That's it. Have a great day. I will talk to you guys soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. 
I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.